The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov, where you get a Christian Reconstructionist perspective on the pressing issues of today. Welcome to episode 81 of Acts to the Root Podcast, part of the War Room Productions. I'm Paul Marinoff, and for the next 30 minutes, we will talk about one of the most bizarre concepts the world has ever known, namely, the future. Okay, I know, I lost you right here at the very beginning. The future is a bizarre concept. How come? What do you mean, Bo? The future sounds to me as one of the most natural concepts a man can have. We're born thinking of the future, dreaming about the future, imagining what we're going to be in the future, planning for the future... No person has ever found it difficult to think of the future and eagerly and to eagerly expect the future. Why would it be bizarre if everyone is so familiar and so comfortable with the concept of the future? What are you talking about? Not so quick. Let's start thinking here. I suggest that we have all, always accepted the concept of the future as natural and normal without thinking why it should be natural and normal. Most of us never even thought what the future is as a concept. When we dig into that concept and into the way it is produced and perceived by our minds and hearts, we may discover that it is not as natural and normal as we may have first thought. Maybe it's not even normal. Uh, maybe, uh, may it, maybe, uh, maybe it's not even not normal. It may be a severe aberration, a mental monstrosity. If the naturalness of our minds is to be our standard for normalcy, perhaps we need to stop and consider the possibility that future is simply an illusion which we have been poisoned with from an early age. Perhaps it's even a propaganda device meant to manipulate us and control us for certain purposes. Who knows what we can discover if we start thinking about the concept of the future instead of just accepting it on faith. Uh, but then again, we may discover that it is just a normal and natural concept, as we have always thought, right? But whatever we discover, it is still worth to start thinking about that concept of the future. What is it? It may help us learn things about ourselves and about how our minds operate. And if we learn things about ourselves, we may learn things about our Christian faith. And, as John Calvin said in the first book of his Institutes, once we learn more about ourselves, we may end up learning about God. So, what is future? Specifically, what is it as a concept of thought, of philosophy, of psychology, of practical ideology? How do we define it? And where does it come from? Is it part of our nature to think of the future as a separate category? Do all people instinctively adopt it as, as part of their thought models? Or is it something that we learn from our parents because they learned it from others before them? And therefore, if we had parents from a different culture that didn't have the concept of future, we wouldn't even think about it as a valid reality. Reformed Christians, and especially presuppositionalists among my listeners, may be fascinated to learn that despite the prevalence of that concept in our everyday lives and in our formal philosophical uh, and ideological systems and endeavors, the concept of the future has been amazingly underrepresented in philosophical and psychological studies. Not that there aren't any studies on it, but the, the existing ones are way too few for such a common concept, and they are usually limited in scope. Even if you go to uh, Wikipedia and read the article on future, you will see that that article is quite short. 
with a few sketchy paragraphs on each of the disciplines of uh, physics, philosophy, and religion, and half of the article devoted to side issues like uh, art styles and music and literary genres that have adopted the concept as foundational, like futurism or science fiction. It even lacks serious uh, references for additional reading. No books, only a few references to marginal encyclopedias in newspaper articles. To compare, the article on mysticism, for example, is about eight times longer, very detailed, very comprehensive, and has about 150 references, all to serious academic studies. And yet, how often is mysticism present as a topic in serious discussions as opposed to the future? The discrepancy is not only in Wikipedia, it is everywhere. Philosophers discuss a whole lot of other subjects, but they somehow always evade discussing the future as a philosophical concept, even though the future is one of the most common concepts the modern man deals with every day. Now, there were attempts, of course, few and far between. Roger Everett, a British engineer and educator who immigrated to the United States in the 1960s, worked as an aerospace engineer at McDonnell Douglas and later taught at several universities and the postgraduate naval college. He did try to tackle future as a philosophical concept. His doctoral dissertation with uh, the University of California in Los Angeles in 1973 was titled Conceptualizing the Future. Implications for Strategic Management in a Turbulent Environment. He later went on to teach strategic management and had to tackle the concept again. Now, most of his treatment of the concept of the future, however, remained limited to the area of strategic management. Uh, not, not that there is any problem in such specific application of the concept, but it certainly tends to limit the scope, and, and Everett ended taking more things for granted than he analyzed and explained. After him... No one really tried to explain the concept from a philosophical perspective. The deepest studies ever tackled the concept uh, in, the, in the context of only consumer behavior. The 1980s and the 1990s were the culmination of studies on consumer behavior and expectations of the future were central to any understanding of how the consumers would react to new products or commercials. Still, no scholar dared touch the concept from a more general philosophical starting point. In that period, the term philosophy of time became popular, but despite its popularity, no one really sat down to even give a definition of the concept of the future, let alone study it as a concept. The philosophy of time studies focused mainly either on realism, the metaphysical relation between past, present, and future, or on nominalism, human perception of time, and the theory of time preferences. The last one especially important for the study of political economy and entrepreneurship and investment. Again, nothing wrong with these studies. In fact, they are important both practically and theoretically, but a definition of future was still not given and neither was a study of the concept itself presented. The concept of the future has take, was taken for granted, as if it has already been defined and studied, and only its relationship with other concepts was examined. Unique, huh? There is really no other such concept in philosophy that has been treated in such a lousy way. In fact, if anything, secular philosophers have often criticized Christians for not being able to define God, now that God is definable in human terms in the Christian world in the first place, and yet here they are taking for granted a concept that they have never even tried to define. Now, there's a good reason why modern philosophy, especially modern secular philosophy, is incapable of even beginning to define the concept of the future. 
That reason is that modern philosophy has fallen victim to its foundational premise, that whatever definition or logical rule we use, it cannot refer us uh, back to anything supernatural or to any other and higher reason or mind outside and above the human mind and human experience. Everything man uses to define himself and the world around himself must be based on natural assumptions, meaning naturalistic assumptions. All the foundations for our definitions must be grounded in man's direct sensory experience. That means whatever you see with your senses. You know the regular atheist excuse for an argument, if I can't see your God, then he is either non-existent or irrelevant. Now, now it's a stupid, and philosophers know that such excuse is rather primitive and lowbrow, and they seldom use it directly, but it's still as a philosophical presupposition embedded deeply into the modern secular thought. So when it comes to definitions of things that will require some open display of non-sensory faith, philosophers are rather timid to take up the challenge. And indeed, think about it. How can we define the future based on the modern secular thought that requires sensory experience before there is a definition? Why should we be, why should we be even mindful about the future? Has anyone experienced it? Has anyone seen it? I use that argument with atheists many times. Do you believe there is future? Have you seen it? Can you describe it? Can you define it? The answers were always quite lame, logically. The complaints secularists raise about the Christian God apply to the concept of the future as well. I mean, it is only a figment of our imagination, only a conjecture, an extrapolation from misinterpreted evidence, and all of that evidence comes from another imaginary, the concept of the past but I won't go there in this episode. No one has seen it or experienced it, really. There's no natural reason for us to even believe there is future or that it has any relevant significance to anything we do or say or think. The only possible answer to this is that even if we haven't experienced the future so far, we will surely experience it tomorrow when it comes. But so what? When it comes, it won't be future anymore, it will be present. To base our definitions on mental expectations, not sensory experience, would be to resort to faith. And why would a secularist philosopher want to base his philosophy on faith? I mean, once you resort to faith for one thing, who knows in how many more definitions you will let faith dictate your perceptions and definitions. And then, what is the defense against Christianity and its faith-based philosophy? So no wonder secularist philosophers avoid defining the future as a concept. They may talk about it, they may take it for granted in their so-called studies or discussions, they may even try to predict it, but they never know what it is. And it is not just modern secular philosophers. All pagan religions follow the same pattern. Well, of course, all pagan religions are by default naturalistic, given that their gods are simply parts of, part of the universe itself, and therefore are under the same limitations as man in terms of definitions. How can a pagan god, limited in his very being to the position of simply another being within space and time, experience the future so that he can define it? He may look into a crystal ball and kind of make guesses and predictions and prophecies about it, but would that be a true experience of the future? No. Even if those prophecies were true and the future happens to be exactly what they prophesied, it would still be no sensory experience of the future, only a word of faith. So. Pagan religions never talk about the future. It's never a concept that they either define or visualize. In fact, to a great extent, it is something they're afraid of. My favorite example of the classical world is the Aeneid. The Aeneid was a poem written by the Roman poet Virgil, 
a close friend of the Roman Emperor Octavian Augustus. Augustus, by all accounts, was a very unique Roman, even by the standard of the times. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and these two men, Julius and Octavian, were about the highest and best representation of what was considered, considered traditional Roman moral virtues. If it wasn't for these two men, the Roman people would never accept the transformation of Rome from republic into an empire. But at the time, the republic had lost its popular appeal because of the corruption and the civil strife and the oppression by the upper classes, while Caesar, and after him Octavian, made it look like an empire uh, will always have at the top a person of exquisite moral qualities plus the political will to implement and achieve a better vision for society. Indeed, from the vision and the courage of Julius Caesar and the practical genius of Octavian Augustus, the Roman Empire was born and was so successful that 2,000 years plus later it is still studied as the ultimate example of successful government. Now, whether it was or not is a different issue. We're talking perception here. After his adoptive father, Julius Caesar was assassinated by a conspiracy of senators who wanted the restoration of the Republic, the civil war in Rome started again. Octavian was only 19 at the time. For the next 14 years, he had to fight, his, fight first against the assassins, who had assembled a large army, then against his own ally, Mark Antony. He was 33 when he defeated his last enemy and set out to build an empire that would embody the vision of Caesar. Having come from a lower background, his clan, the Octavia, were plebeians, adopted into the nobility by Caesar, Octavian knew the importance of mass propaganda, so he commissioned his friend, Virgil, to produce a poem that would make Caesar's and Octavian's reign to seem like the culmination of the destiny of Rome. Virgil started in 29 BC and worked on it for 10 years. The result was the Aeneid. Now, I must admit, I have a weakness for it. It's one of the most beautiful historical epics ever written. I only wish I could enjoy its meter in the original Latin. Unfortunately, I'm not so proficient in the language to appreciate it. I have only read it in the Bulgarian translation and parts of it in an English translation. It is such a good story that quite a few people are asking why in the world hasn't it been made into a blockbuster movie? Indeed, you want to have a real feel of classical literature? Trust me on that. Forget Homer. Virgil is better, even though he set out to only imitate Homer. Yes, in the final account, he did create government propaganda for his friend Octavian. That government propaganda was so powerful that Octavian ruled for 45 years as the sole ruler of Rome, completely undisturbed by any rival. The masses were so devoted to him that when in his old age he retired from his position of consul uh, for, for life, the plebs, the people of Rome, rioted, believing that it was an aristocratic conspiracy to take him down from power. But government propaganda or not, the poem was beautiful. Uh, there are no such examples today. Anyway, back to the story. The Aeneid was the story of Aeneas, the legendary, or perhaps not so legendary, ancestors of Romulus, the founder of Rome, and of the Roman race in general. Aeneas was a Trojan, the son of a mortal prince and the goddess Aphrodite, who fled after the destruction of Troy. He is mentioned in Homer's Iliad only as a secondary character, although with a hint for a yet unknown destiny. After he escapes the destruction in Troy, he visits several countries, including Carthage, until he gets to Italy, where he settles among the locals and establishes his line. 
the beautiful mythology of the early beginning of Rome is intertwined with hints and even direct retrospective prophecies about Julius Caesar and his son Octavian and their dynasty as a fulfillment of the destiny of Aeneas. The final motif of the poem would have been very clear to any Roman citizen who read it or listened to it. The time has come for the seed of Aeneas to be manifested, and this seed is Octavian Augustus. Sounds heroic and optimistic, right? Sounds like full of bright expectation for the future, like a promise for growth and progress and many more good things in the future, now that the true heir of Aeneas has come. Rome is finally on the right foot in the right hands, and who knows what unspeakable blessings the future will contain. Nope. To the contrary, the tone of the poem is quite pessimistic about man, the nature of man, society of man, and history. While on the surface, especially for us moderns, it may look like this is an uplifting story that holds many bright promises, it is actually a story of decline. It is a story that demonizes change in the future, and every step in it delivers newer and newer blows to the hopes and expectations of its protagonists. It contains deep admiration for the past and its golden ages, but it never mentions the future. It takes it for granted that whatever new things come, they won't make the world better than it was. Aeneas, in the final chapters of the book, has no faith in the future. Despite his abilities and power and strength, his only fight is to survive among enemies, and nothing in the tone of the poem indicates any expectation of future glories and improvement. Then what was the promise for the people of Rome in it? And what was the appeal of Octavian's reign? It was not progress. It was stagnation. Yes, the promise was stagnation. The more things changed before that, the worse the world had become. Octavian came with the promise that nothing will ever change again. The, the old golden age was gone. A new one, new one was not coming. The only hope that uh, was that time would somehow freeze and there won't be future. That's what Octavian promised to do. In fact, that was a major part of his propaganda campaign. His main adversary, Mark Antony, served him with the main propaganda pitch by fleeing to Egypt, becoming a lover to Cleopatra. All that Octavian had to do is declare that Antony wanted to introduce changes and bring Egyptian customs to Rome. Right there, Antony lost all his appeal with the people of Rome. No one wanted changes. Everyone was afraid of what the future would bring. Octavian's promise of eternal stability and no future changes was all that the people wanted. The Aeneid was not unique. The pagan world hated the notion of change and development. Time was, of course, philosophically understood, but still hated. Parmenides of Elia denied the existence of time and change whatsoever. It was an illusion, he thought. Heraclitus of Ephesus went in the opposite direction and said that nothing stays the same, everything changes, but he never postulated any specific goal and purpose and end of those changes. So in principle, his concept of time was just as stagnant as that of uh, uh, Parmenides. They hated the future and changed so much that whenever anything new appeared, they made sure they destroyed it. When an inventor showed Emperor Tiberius a new metal he created out of dust, which must have been aluminum, Tiberius had him executed. The steam engine was known for two centuries in the ancient world, but no attempts have been made to put it, uh, made to, put it to productive use. 
The Chinese culture made an, made an amazing number of discoveries very early in its history, and yet the government and the culture never applied them to mass use. And in fact, by the early 20th century, the average Chinese lived no differently than his ancestors 20 centuries earlier. And I'm sure I don't have to explain to my listeners the Buddhist and Zen Buddhist view of time. In short, time is an illusion for them, as is all existence, of course. The Jews, of course, were the sore thumb in the story. They not only believed in time, they eagerly expected the future. They counted the years to that future. Their prophets tried to examine it, and some even to fast forward to it. Some, like Simeon and Hannah, lived in the temple waiting to see the future, but their view was still stagnant. Given that the future was, was focused on a specific single event, the coming of the Messiah, but what after that? The Jews didn't know. The New Testament says that they were trying to figure out what after that, but were never given that revelation by the Holy Spirit. Their faithfulness was supposed to consist in discerning the time when the Messiah came. Not that they were exemplary in it, but that's another topic altogether. And then the Messiah would tell them what after that. So in a sense, God left them with a stagnant view of the future on purpose, but it was still a view of the future that was unique for the ancient world. The wise men of Matthew 2.1 were not some obscure group. The whole known world at the time knew that the Jews had a view of the future different from anyone else and acknowledged their uniqueness in this regard. Sure, they were still groping in the dark, like everyone else, as to the time of redemption, but at least they knew redemption was surely coming. But Christ not only delivered the redemption, he also delivered the view of the future shocking to everyone, including the Jews. On one hand, he was the fulfillment of the expectations of the Jews. On the other hand, however, he was the destruction of their expectations. From a Jewish perspective, history was supposed to end right there at the coming of the Messiah. He was supposed to defeat his enemies and establish the throne of David and rule over the world. And the world was supposed to enter the same stagnant state that the Aeneid postulated about the reign of Augustus. Everything would be perfect, nothing would change anymore. That's what the disciples expected of Jesus. This is obvious from their reactions to his eschatological passages. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Or who of us will be greater in the coming kingdom? Jesus, however, had a different view of the future, one that would shock both Gentiles and Jews. He scandalized the Gentiles by saying uh, that all their past to which they clung so religiously was nothing, that the future was what mattered. That change is not demonic, not dark, but it's the only way they can enter the kingdom of God and find purpose. That God had prepared for them if they trusted in him unspeakable blessings that the past knew nothing about. All your poets, philosophers, kings, heroes, gods, and semi-gods were blind. There was no golden age in your past. The future is what matters. That was a war. When you read all the Roman edicts against the Christians, what is the main argument there, sometimes repeated three or four times in the same edict? That Christians did not follow the ancient ways and did not honor the past and the ancestors. They had higher expectations of something the Gentiles did not understand, the future. The scandal was much graver for the Jews, though. They were okay with the faith in the future. The scandal that Jesus brought to them was not that the future is important. It was that the event they had been waiting for was not the end of history, but rather its beginning. That, of course, was rather humiliating for a nation that had grown proud of its heritage. To them, it would mean that they were simply the father the consumable for God's plan for history, not the real focus and purpose. 
there would be many more centuries of history, and this time the Jews would not be able to claim the title of a special nation, but would have to take a place as one of all the other nations in the kingdom of God. In fact, even worse, they were to take a third place, according to Isaiah 19.24, after Egypt and Assyria, a clear indication that in the new covenant the nation of Israel would lose its special status. Either way, the vision Jesus introduced of the future was a shocking novelty, and Christians were specifically persecuted for it. We won't understand it unless we understand it for the pagan world. The future was demonic, was to be feared. In fact, all change was demonic and was to be feared. And there, there was this new religion which not only disrespected the past, but it also promised cosmic and gigantic changes on earth, and its followers were actively involved to make those changes and to build that new civilization they wanted, the kingdom of God. They were somehow sure that those changes would bring something new and better, and were so committed to bring them about that they were willing to die for the privilege. Even an avowed, avowed enemy of Christianity like Karl Marx acknowledged this unique view of history in the future. In his uh, address to the Hague Congress in 1872, he said the following, take note of the language of new and old. Someday, this is quoted from Karl Marx, someday the worker must seize political power in order to build up the new organization of labor. He must overthrow the old politics which sustain the old institutions if he is not to lose heaven on earth like the old Christians who neglected and despised politics. That's where he got his idea of change and optimism for the future from the biblical idea of heaven on earth. And then he rightly mocks Christians for abandoning their own idea. But the reality is, before modern Christians abandoned that idea, the only bearer of a true concept of the future, or of any concept of the future at all, was Christianity. Everywhere where Christianity touched, it was met with opposition, not so because people were hostile to the idea of a savior, uh, who gave his life for his people, but because they realized that Christianity meant death to their concept of history. It demanded a full breakup with the past, a full commitment to the future, and an uncompromising belief in the benefits of change. Any change. In culture after culture, we, say, we see the same motif as, as we saw in the Roman edicts against Christians. Christians abandoned the heritage of the past and dishonored the ancestors. When King Boris I uh, uh, of Bulgaria moved to Christianize Bulgaria in the 9th century, that was the only objection of his nobles. This is a war against our past, and my native country wasn't an exception. No matter where you were born, where you were from, when you look back at the history of your ancestors, you will see the same pagan refrain, your Christianity dishonors our past. Well, heck it does. It does it because it presents to you a God who is above time and has created time and he controls past and present and future. And he commands you to abandon your past and your pagan heritage. And instead of heritage and looking back, he invites you to adopt a hope, a faith and looking forward. Your past is worth nothing. What is worth everything is the things that God has prepared for you that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human mind has conceived. Isaiah 64, 4 and 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 9. Christianity radically shifted the focus of man from the past to the future and thus created a radically new mentality when it has never existed before. And it scared the daylights out of the pagan cultures. Or rather scared the darkness out of, of, of it. 
You want to know where the original idea of progressivism came? It was from Christianity. Modern progressives have simply stolen the idea and has stripped it of its Christian roots. And they have only done it because Christians have abandoned the idea of progress. This new concept of the future didn't catch right away. For centuries after the birth of the Christian church, many fathers of the church still tried to preserve the past, and specifically this most sublime uh, creation of the pagan past, the Roman Empire. Even Augustine, for all his optimism, saw the preservation of the empire as necessary for the preservation of the civilization. They still believed in change, but they were still afraid of it. The most radical proponents of change, of course, were the missionaries outside the borders of the civilized world. They had nothing to lose. Isidore of Seville, working with the old Roman pagan aristocracy and the new Aryan political elite in Spain, clearly saw the coming of a future era of prosperity after the dark ages of the crumbling empire. That's the reason he set out to, pre- to, to preserve all the available knowledge in the, uh, of the old world in his etymologies. By the 13th century, a number of scholars in Christendom were already clearly envisioning uh, that new world, and some even predicted the rise of science and technology, which was an unknown concept to the ancients. Roger Bacon in the 13th century laid the foundation for systematization of science. Another Bacon, Francis, postulated the specific rules um, for the scientific method in the 17th century, four centuries later. In the same period, Christendom gave the beginning of a new genre, utopian and futuristic literature, with works uh, with the works of uh, Thomas More, Utopia, and Tommaso Campanella, uh, The City of the Sun. Even occultism at the, at the time switched to long-term prophecies of the future, like those of Nostradamus, uh, something uh, occultists of previous centuries never tried to do. Now, those were fiction, but there were also attempts at scientific forecast of future progress. In the Netherlands in the 16th century, for a time, the Dutch West India Company hired scientists and mathematicians to try to analyze and forecast future explorations and trade profits with the purpose of planning. Italian uh, maritime insurance agencies in the Mediterranean also had their forecasting teams trying to predict profits and losses from the political news in the area. In fact, one can say this new mass orientation to the future was the single most powerful psychological and sociological factor behind the Reformation, behind the English and the American revolutions, and even behind the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. The ancient world had its insurrections and revolts against oppressive governments, but none were really successful. The reason? The masses had no idea what they were supposed to achieve. Probably the best documented one was the slave uprising led by Spartacus in 73 to 71 BC. The slaves led by this brilliant tactician defeated powerful Roman armies several times, but were unsure of what exactly they wanted to do. They moved north to escape through the Alps to Gaul, then turned back, crossed all the way south to Sicily, and moved west to Bern- uh, east to Brundisium, where they were finally defeated. What was their purpose? No one knows. And it's possible they themselves didn't. They had no past to lean on as their Roman enemies, and they had no idea of the future. But in Christendom, especially after the 15th century, more and more people viewed the future and change as something positive, and therefore had an idea of what they wanted of the future. We can never understand the Reformation or any of the changes that followed without understanding this basic fact of the development of the European thought. More and more people were conscious of the concept of the future and were eager for change. It also changed their view of children. The ancient world viewed children as an asset for their parents and for the ancestors. 
In the most radical forms of that belief, children were sacrificed for the purposes of the parents or of the state. In Homer's Iliad, Agamemnon uh, sacrifices his daughter to appease the gods and get what he needs to proceed with his military plans. We know from the Bible the sin of Phoenicia, where infants were burned to Moloch for the purposes of the state. Carthage, a Phoenician city, continued the same tradition. According to some ancient sources, the great Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca had a twin who was sacrificed by his parents to the gods so that the other twin could grow to be a great leader in the service of the Carthaginian Empire. The Romans themselves, influenced by the Hebrew teachings through their second king, Numa Pompilius, detested such child sacrifices. And yet, even though the state didn't demand religious sacrifice of children, they were specifically forbidden, the custom still gave the father of the family the right to kill his own son, even if he was already an adult, if he found the son to be unworthy of service to the ancestors. Children were frequently employed in gladiatorial games, as slaves, and even as participants in sexual orgies. During the persecutions against Christians, children were raped, tortured, and thrown to the beasts together with adults. There was no special consideration of childhood in Rome. No one saw children as anything special to be protected. You know those popular modern essays of fathers who issue threats and warnings to young men who would date or court their daughters? And the father's prideful declaration of how he would meet the young man with his shotgun and his 45 at the door? Or the modern constant bashing and browbeating of the younger generation? Because, of course, we of the older generation were so much better than them. See the Axe to the Root episode on bashing millennials. That was Rome, too. Such distrust and resentment and disparagement of the younger generation is a very specific characteristic of a people who either never thought of the future or have lost their vision of it. If you want to know what a culture thinks uh, of the future, see how it treats its, young, its young, young people. Does it trash them, bash them, and distrust them? That culture has lost its vision of the future. Does it trust them, uplift them, encourage them, arms them with purpose and vision? That culture has broken its chains with the past, has abandoned its idolatry of the ancestors, and has adopted an optimistic outlook. It is for this reason why, when we look at the days of Christendom in Europe and North America, we see that the majority of the important figures in those centuries were men in their 20s and 30s. Luther was 34 when he nailed the 95 Thesis. Calvin was 21 when he broke openly with the Roman Catholic Church, and he was 27 when he fled Paris and settled in Geneva. By that time, he had already written half of his institutes, at least the first version. The majority of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were young men that today wouldn't even be seriously considered for political office. Men joined the military or the navy at unbelievably young ages, some even starting at, starting at nine, and some reaching commanding ranks by the age of 16. Now, this speaks much about these young men, but it speaks even more about the society around them, which saw no issue with giving them authority over older men. Benjamin Franklin was 70 years old at the time of the American Revolution, and he worked with young men 50 years his junior and discussed politics with them and issued proclamations with them, and we never ever see him even mentioning this gigantic age gap between him and his co-workers and co-conspirators. Never even a condescending word or a patronizing tone. Same thing with George Washington or some of the other older men among the revolutionaries. To compare, Lafayette was only 20 when he joined the revolution.
and yet we see no hint of any distrust or of any patronizing of the Frenchman by any American founding father. The future even became an obsession in the 19th century. After 1841, futurism as a style of art and politics and literature became prominent in everything. The first science fiction novels and the first futuristic postcards appeared in those days. Europe was gradually abandoning Christianity, but it still had a strong momentum in the Christian worldview. It is highly ironic that in those days, even those who were the most strongly committed to conservatism were still men who defined their conservatism as making progressive reforms. I'm not kidding you. My favorite example of that era is William von Humboldt, the brother of the great explorer and scientist Alexander von Humboldt. William had a saying uh, in German, Alles Neue eckelt mich an. All that is new disgusts me. And yet, this implacable reactionary and conservative was responsible for the most progressive educational reforms in Europe in the Kingdom of Prussia, which within just a few years completely transformed the educational climate in Prussia and all of Germany. If even the most conservative and the reactionary figures saw it necessary and desirable to bring about wide-sweeping changes, you know Europe had a very strong and a very healthy view of the future. Ironically, during that period, it was the church that had dropped the ball. Pessimistic eschatology, amillennialism, and premillennialism were already creeping in. By the beginning of the 20th century, the church had surrendered to pessimism, and with it, the Western civilization in general. But that's a matter of another episode. But I need to say that our modern world today is very far from the optimism of those days. Granted, the momentum created by Christianity has continued for 200 years, despite false theologies, despite the resurgence of paganism and secular humanism, despite the two world wars and the Cold War. I suspect, since the kingdom of God grows in history, that optimism will never again fade. It will be manifested in different forms, not necessarily theological or philosophical. Despite the ruling theoretic pessimism in academic and seminary circles, the majority of the people still continue investing in businesses and stocks, scientists and inventors continue their discoveries and developments, and people still buy the newest technological toys. Politicians and media spew their scares and fear manipulation campaigns, and some people still buy them, despite evidence to the contrary, and yet, in practice, even they don't act accordingly. The concept of the future and the optimism that comes with it are still here. But if ideas have consequences, we don't know for how long. And we need to change our thinking back to what the Bible says about the future and abandon our neo-pagan pessimism and fear. The book I will assign for reading this week is Gary North, Is the World Running Down? Crisis in the Christian Worldview. The title says it all. You just need to read it. And if you have been with Axe to the Root by now, you don't need an introduction to who Gary North is. In your prayer and giving, consider Bulgarian Reformation Ministries, a mission organization devoted to building the intellectual foundation for the future. Did you hear that word? Future. For the future Christian civilization in Eastern Europe, through translation and publishing of books that apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to all areas of life. Visit BulgarianReformation.com. Subscribe to the newsletter and donate. And God bless you all. This was a Reconstructionist Radio War Room production. Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Please visit BojidarMarinov.com and ReconstructionistRadio.com forward slash Acts to the Root.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.